You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Uh, if you want to follow along, I'm going to be reading verse 14, starting in verse 14. However, I am going to read from the message translation, which is usually a very different translation than the NIV or the NASB or the like. It's a, it's a paraphrase translation. If you're there, say Deuteronomy 10, 14. All right, it says this. It says, look around you. Everything you see is God's. The heavens above and beyond, the earth and everything in it. But it was your ancestors who God fell in love with. He picked their children. That's you out of all the other people. That's where we are right now. So cut away the thick calluses from your heart and stop being so unwilling, full, hard-headed. God is your God. He is the God of all gods. He is the master of all masters. A God immense and powerful and awesome. Amen, right? Keep reading. He says he doesn't play play favorites. He takes no bribes. He makes sure orphans and widows are fairly treated. He takes loving care of foreigners by seeing that they get food and clothing. You must treat foreigners the same way. And then it says, um, he's your praise. He's your God. He did all these tremendous, these staggering things you saw with your own eyes. When your ancestors entered Egypt, they numbered only about 70 souls. Now look at you. You are more like the stars in the night sky in your number. And God did it. Let's pray to our awesome master of all masters, God. Father, we do come before you humbly. And God, as we study theology this morning, as we take a look at what the Bible says about your nature, your character, who you are. God, open us up to see a bigger you. God... If it's possible to see you more clearly, to see you as, as you truly are, more real to us. So God, open our hearts and minds that we may know you better. God, we want to seek you, to know who you are and what you're like. And God, we want to know your attributes. And, and Father, just fill us up today with who you are, your goodness, your holiness, your bigness. Father, we love you and we do praise you this morning. And everybody screamed. Amen. Amen. Do you guys know who Ravi Zacharias is? Ravi Zacharias is a really cool guy. He's an apologetics, apologetician, apologetics guy. And he, uh, he talks about um, reasons for defending our faith. And he, he gave this really cool illustration about the importance of knowing what is foundationally or the ideas that ideas build off one of another. And he said that there's this museum in uh, Ohio. Any Ohio fans? There's Ohio State University, uh, the Buckeyes, right, in Columbus. And on the Ohio State campus is this really new, cool museum of art. It's very famous. It's called the Wexler Museum for Art. And uh, the museum was designed after kind of post-modernity. And there's, there's let, me, let me read it so I get it right. There are um, the buildings, the first postmodern building with pillars, excuse me, pillars holding up nothing, walls that are misshapen, lines and colors making up random space, different dis- different designs and just random, just pipes and pillars and very random. It has no real purpose. The idea behind it was that if uh, life in the postmodern thinking, if life has no purpose, 
then why should this building, and we were creating a building to reflect the art of our thinking that there is no purpose, which we as Christians would disagree with. And so Rabbi Zacharias gives this example and then says, I had only one question when I was touring the museum. I had only one question. And my question was, did you build the foundation in the same way? Just random pillars, random stones holding up this building. And of course the answer is a big absolute no. You don't build a foundation like that. If you built a foundation like that, the building would stand for more than 10 years, more than 5 years. It would crumble. It would fall over. And so the foundation upon the things that we build on is very important. The foundation of theologies, the foundation of philosophical thinking... When we get further and further down, we should find a foundation that is strong, that is that we can build on. And so today, we're going to answer the question. We might not answer the question. We're going to at least bring up the question, does God change his mind? If you're taking notes, kind of the, the theme this morning is, does God change his mind? But before we just jump into that question... We're going to look at the foundation. We need to talk about who God is, the nature of who God is. And then by answering that question, does God change his mind? Either yes or no. That's going to say something about his nature. And so we want to get his nature down. We want to get it a clear understanding of this foundation of who God is before we go up to the 10th floor and ask a question like, does God change his mind? See where we're going today? Okay, before we go there, some announcements. If you're newish, if you're a noob, if this is your first time, um, we don't want to embarrass you. We want to give you free coffee, and we have a free gift for you back there. There should be on all the tables a little uh, Sunday school card. It says, uh, get schooled on it, first timer card. And if you fill that out and bring it to the nice dudes and dudettes back there, they will give you a, a, a CD that talks about the mill, which is our meeting on Friday night, who we are, and things like that. So that's your free gift for filling that out, we want to welcome you. We like new people, don't we? Yeah. Yes, we do. Uh, let's see, other announcements. Uh, this is the last Sunday of January, and so that we do topics uh, by month, and so this is the last topic of theology that we're covering for the month of January. February, we'll begin our topic of missions. Anybody going on missions this summer? Lots of hands. So there, there should be lots of other missions friends. We're inviting all the people from the mill that are going on missions. We're inviting them so it could be a little bigger of a crowd. So get here earlier and get, get your seat so that no one steals where you sit. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so, that, so that's missions next month. Something to look forward to. Uh, we talked about the visitor card. Okay, let's dive right in to the attributes of God. Look at your notes. If you have notes, we call it uh, a skillet. It's this little piece of paper, and I have five attributes of God, and we're going to kind of go through these kind of quickly, and so take notes, stay with me, because this is extremely important for studying who God is before we could go up and ask a question like, does God change his mind? Number one, so there's five of these, you see them, all five, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, immense, and constant. Do you see them? Yes. Okay, me too. The first one is omnipresent, meaning that God is all... Present. <laughs> you guys doing okay this morning? Omnipresent means God is all present. present. Yeah, He's present in all things, over all space. That means, can you hide from God? No, when I was in Pakistan, uh, I know that Pakistanis are mostly, it's a, it's a Muslim nation, and there's strict, under the Quran, there's strict rules that say you cannot drink alcohol. And I remember this guy was drinking, and he was a Muslim, 
And he took a sip and then said, God blinked. <laughs> it's like, I didn't see that. I think he did. I think he did see it, actually. Um, the, the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, the God that we worship does not blink. The God that we worship is in all space. You can't run from him. You can't hide from him. There's no universe too far away that God can't visit, that he doesn't know about. He is omnipresent. He is he is here with us. He is everywhere. You can't hide. You can't run from him. The next one is omnipotent, meaning God is all powerful. Good. Yes. He's all powerful. There is no limit to his power. Like if you if you compare it to uh, Satan, Satan and God, sometimes people have this wrong impression that somehow Satan and God are warring against each other and they're trying to figure out who's going to win and what's going to happen. Is that true? No, not at all. God is all-powerful, and Satan is but a mere creation of God. It's like a human being and an ant, but infinitely more complex because God is God, and Satan is a creation. And so, it's, so God has all power. Um, he, he is, if it is in his will, if he wants to do something, there is nothing he is not able to do. Is that a double negative? He can do everything. That's what I mean. All-powerful. Omniscient is the next one, meaning that God is all-knowing. He knows everything. He, he, knows, he knows you from your mother's womb. He knows the fu- future. He, the, the Bible is filled with prophecies. God knows the future. He knows what is going to happen. Here's a good question. It's for another Sunday school. But since God knows the end, does God know who you're going to marry? Does God know if you're going to graduate college? Does God know how you're going to die? Does God know how many kids you're going to have? Yes, he knows all those things. Here's a question. Does he predestine those things out of his sovereignty? Or do we get to choose those things and choose our own path? <laughs> That's a great question. It's not for this Sunday. It's a whole other, like a month of Sunday school uh, topics. But God knows the future. He does know whether he directs and is sovereignly pushing one way and we are have to go this way or whether it's all about free choice and God is guiding us. Um, that is up for debate. But he does know the end. He, do, he does know the future. He is omniscient. The next couple ones, so those are the three omnis. Omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. All-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. And then these next two, which may, these next two uh, may be a little new to you. But the first one, uh, the first one that's not the omni is called immense. God is immense. And for that, if you were writing down definitions, I would just put hugeness over all things. Definition for immense, it's kind of my definition. If you looked in the dictionary, it would be more serious. But it's hugeness over all things. That our God is without measure. Without anything pre-existing God. God's so huge without measure that he is not subject to anything. For instance, things that we're subject to are maybe time. We're subject to time. We can't time travel. We can't see into the future clearly. Uh, But God can. He is not subject to time. Before God was, there was nothing we can't say, oh, before the God existed, there was time, and God is somehow subject to time. No. He either created time or he created time. There, he wasn't, there wasn't time before God. God has always been. He is not subject to time. There's that verse that says, uh, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, Second Peter 3.8. 
Um, God is not subject. Another thing God is not subject to is, say, emotions. God may have emotions. He may be angry or um, he may be filled with uh, a love for someone. And those are emotions, but he's not subject to them. If something really bad happens to us as humans, and uh, we're, none of us are above this, if, if, say, we lose a loved one or something really bad happens to us, then we're going to be subject to those bad feelings, those emotions. And we may not be able to go to work for several days in a, a period of time. We may not be able to function right because we're so subject to our emotions. But God isn't subject to anything. He is without measure. He's the beginning and the end. A little story time with Joe. Asland, dear Asland, at last. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Asland, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. <laughs> not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. What's it from? Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian by C.S. Lewis. There's that line that C.S. Lewis just brilliantly just adds in. I mean, so much of his writing is brilliant. I really like that about God's bigness because Lucy, this little girl, is seeing Aslan, who is, by the way, on the cover of your skillet, little lion guy there. And the lion guy in... Uh, <laughs> I guess he's kind of like a lion god because he's the god of Narnia, a very Christ-like figure of Narnia. And uh, meant to represent the God of the Bible. C.S. Lewis was a Christian. And uh, so Lucy says, Aslan, you've gotten bigger since I've last seen you. And Aslan says, no, I haven't. I've always been the same as this idea. You've gotten bigger. As your knowledge of me grows, as you see me and you get older, you think I'm bigger. But I'm not any bigger. I'm always the same. Um, God is without measure. He's constant. Which brings us to our next point. The final, the fifth attribute of God. These are the, these are the classical attributes that we have up to, uh, seen clearly in the Bible. And we say God, are the, God has these attributes. He has this as his nature. And before talking about this last one, maybe I should say these aren't the only five. For instance, other attributes of God could be God is loving, right? God is holy, right? God is, uh, let's see, what are some of the other ones? He is um, holy other. He is He's loving. He uh, is good. He is spirit. He is has personality. Um, and so those are other attributes. But these are the five infinite attributes of God. The five classical infinite attributes. The natures of God. And so the last one is constant. The final one is constant. If you're writing down definitions, put the quality of having uh, a resolute mind. And I did get that one from the dictionary. The quality of having a resolute mind, you can put comma, purpose, or affection. The quality of having a resolute mind, purpose, or affection. Steadfastness, for instance. The freedom from change. God is stable. God's nature is unchanging. Uh, a cool verse, if you're writing down verses to read or look at or study later, Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Have you heard that verse before? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is constant. Um, I'm a big fan of John Piper. Anybody else a John Piper fan? He's a really cool pastor, writer, theologian. He often talks about the greatness of God and how God is so huge and above and beyond everything. 
And John Piper said, uh, he gave this analogy. And that, right before he gave it, he said, this analogy is going to fall very short. However, it's still an analogy that may help us understand how God is constant. And he said, compare God to the bigness of the Pacific Ocean. The Pacific Ocean is big. It's a big body of water, lots and lots of water. And depending on how you look at that ocean of water, you can see it as either constant or very changing. For instance, from the perspective of the bottom of the ocean, the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, it's very constant. It's a constant temperature. There's not much movement. If you go to the floor, you can like pick up dust that's been there for hundreds of years because not much is going on at the bottom of the ocean. It's just this big bowl of water and it's so deep and it's so heavy that it stays constant and yet at the same time at the surface of the pacific ocean for instance you could be somewhere in the world where there's a hurricane and mass devastation of the water uh, and, and wind and huge waves and then you could go to another place in the world in the pacific ocean and maybe it's sunny and there's little waves and there's kids boogie boarding and learning how to surf and so it's the it's the constant at the bottom and yet two different places can be very different and he gave the example for for instance god can be very angry and very uh, and putting out his judgment on one group of people or one person and yet at the same time another group of people say the people meeting all over colorado right now and meeting for worship and prayer and to pray to him and to glorify god to repent of their sins maybe god is very very happy with these people and yet god is very very angry and and mad at another group of people at the same time comparing it to the pacific ocean hurricane nice nice water over here and yet it's all remains constant god's nature is unchanging he is constant and so uh, so that should form the the foundation of where we're going with the rest of mill sunday school and so i want to open it up for discussion for discussions at your table and i want you to do two things the question is, the question that I keep bringing up, does God change his mind? Does God change his mind? And I, I would love it if you just took a stance like, yes, he can, or no, he can't. And then at your table, ha- had like a, a wrestling federation. <laughs> just kidding. We're, we're, this is discussion. This isn't debate. I think it's silly when Christians like get mad at each other uh, over, over theology. It's like, no, let's learn from each other. Let's discuss so does God change his mind, yes or no? And then the bigger question. So maybe everyone has an idea, yes or no. Maybe a little bit of discussion, friendly debate can happen. Uh, and then, more importantly, get to what's foundationally lying at the reason why you chose either yes or no. So don't just say, oh yeah, sure, or oh no, definitely not. But say kind of, what foundationally do we know about God that gives you maybe the right to, to answer that question, either yes or or no. So you, do you understand what's going down? So you could use these terms, the five attributes, and as you discuss, use them as your vocab and say, yes, God can change his mind, or no, I don't think he does change his mind. Ready? Get set? Discuss. And don't be afraid to, to find other tables or get in a group.
Give you like 60 seconds to wrap up if that's possible. time I'll give you I'll give you half a minute Just 30 seconds all right let's have a little vote in here um, there's probably a lot of you that are in the middle ground somewhere of being like I'm not sure or um, Oh, maybe, but maybe not. So there's, there's kind of some middle ground. But if you had to decide, if you had to say yes or no, if there was only two options, let's say, for this, for this question, does God change his mind? 
yes or no, how many of you would say, yes, he does change his mind? Okay, I see those hands. Okay, interesting. All right, how many of you would say, no, God does not change his mind? Interesting. Maybe 50, maybe the no's win? I don't know. Did it look about 50-50 about though? Okay, here's what, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to kind of explain... I'm hopefully going to give a very fair representation to each side and say, yes, he does change his mind, give you some scripture. uh, First, I'm going to start with actually, no, he does not change his mind, and give you some scriptures. And so let's start off with the no. The no, saying that God does not change his mind. Kind of, do you remember last week's lesson? How many of you were here when we talked about transcendence and imminence? We talked about these big words that said, God is transcendent. He's above us. He is so far above us. That he is awesome, he is holy, he is he created us. But then at the same time, do you remember this other vocabulary word, imminence? God is with us. And so he he enters into creation. He cares about us. We can pray to him, we can talk to him, he is with us. He um, is with us and above us at the same time. If you say no, God does not change his mind, you may be leaning more towards transcendence. This idea that God is totally above, totally unchanging, totally God, and, and we are not God. And so the verses that you might use, uh, did anyone bring up 1 Samuel 15, 29? Write it down. I'm just going to kind of read it quickly. So I'm going to give you three verses. Uh, the first one being 1 Samuel 15, 29. You can look at that and study it later. We're going to go back to it in a second. And it says this. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Do you see that? 1 Samuel 15, 29. <clears throat> Bible says, God does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man. I got another one for you. If you want to write this down, it's Malachi 3, 6. Malachi 3, 6. And it says, I the Lord... Do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. So he's, he's giving them a promise. I, the Lord, do not change. And finally, one more. This one comes from Numbers. Numbers 23, 19 through 21. If you're writing it down. Numbers 23, 19 through 21. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, I, and I cannot change it. No misfortune is to be seen for Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. So there it clearly says, God is not a man, he should not lie, he should not change his mind. And then the question, like a sarcastic question, does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? So those are three very powerful verses that would say, no, God does not change his mind. And if you continue, if you talked about these attributes, you would say God is constant. His nature does not change. And since he's good, he's a good God, since he's a truthful God, he would not say one thing and then change his mind and do another. He is omnipotent, meaning he's all powerful. He could do whatever he wants, but he chooses to be good. He chooses to say what he means to say. And he, he is omniscient, meaning he knows all, so he doesn't have to change his mind. If he changed his mind, he would know that he was about going to change his mind. So why would he say one thing and then do another? So that, those are all arguments for the no, God does not change his mind. And so we're going to look at we're going to look at some examples in the Bible where it, 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 
It does seem like God changes his mind. But if you're a truly uh, someone who says, no, God does not change his mind, what you would say is, for instance, when uh, we're, we're going to look at them, but, but the, the, when, God, when it seems like God changes his mind, that is something called an anthropomorphism. That's probably the biggest word I know. Round of applause for anthropomorphism. Uh, and I will spell it for you, because it's really cool. It's, it's, it's spelled pretty easily, though. Anthro, A-N-T-H-R-O, anthro, and then pomo, P-O-M-O, and then orphism, R-P-H-I-S-M. Anthropomorphism. Anthro meaning what? Do you know in the, in the Greek? Humans. Uh, and then morphism, like someone morphs. What's that mean? Transforming or changing, or it's the you know the object moving, and so an anthropomorphism is it's it's a common literature term. If you're if you're a studier of literature, it's giving something human attributes so that you can understand it. For instance, like Mickey Mouse, a mouse can't sing and dance and talk. However, Mickey Mouse can, so we can enter into Mickey Mouse's stories and how he likes cheese and runs away from rabbits and. Or runs away from cats. <laughs> Whatever he's running away from, he's doing it. Uh, with a smiling face, and he's laughing and singing. And so all of those things are anthropomorphisms. They're things that we place onto an object so that we can understand it better. Um, for instance, Psalm 34, 15. Psalm 34, 15 says... The eyes of the Lord are always towards the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. And I would say that is an anthropomorphism because God does God need eyes to see? Isn't he spirit? Does God really need ears to hear? If God is omnipresent, if he's everywhere at once, then wouldn't, if he really did have eyes and ears, wouldn't that limit him in some ways? Like a giant eye? Like how does that work? Um, but, but it's an anthropomorphism. What it means is he's, he knows the righteous. If you're righteous, God knows you. And if you cry out and you ask for help, God is, is hearing you. He's listening to you. Not the fact that, oh, maybe God has real life eyes and ears. No, that's just a way of saying it. It's anthropomorphism. So, using this big word that you learned today, anthropomorphism. Someone that says, no, God does not change his mind. When we give an example of in the Bible of where God looks like he changes his mind, what someone would say that says God doesn't change his mind is that's an anthropomorphism. He's giving someone uh, the ability to respond to him. He's saying it and like there's the passage that says God relented. He's, he, maybe he didn't really relent, but that's an anthropomorphism, meaning that God was saddened. Maybe, and so that, that's how someone, if, if, all of you that raised your hands and says God does not change his mind, that's an answer to the, the passages in Scripture where it seems like he does change his mind. It's an anthropomorphism. So you got it? I give kind of justice to the no, God does not change his mind. Good enough? Okay. Um, let's go to the yes. Yes, God does change his mind. That leans more, if you remember from last lesson, that leans more towards imminence, that God is with us, that God um, responds to us, that he is involved with us. And so someone that might say yes might compare it to this. This isn't my analogy, but um, so, so imagine someone comes in here this morning and it's someone you know. And it's someone who's always happy and fun to be around. You're like, what a good guy. And he comes in. He's like singing zippity doo da, Zippity-doo-dah. 
And he's like coming in. You know, like this guy is just good, man. He's a good guy. What a great guy. He's just so good. It's fun to be around him. He's so good. And, and then he comes to the front and he sits in the front because all the cool people sit in the front, right? It is true. Uh, and then, and so he sits in the front, but there's, so he get, got his coffee and his bagel, and he's, and he comes, and he sits down, and there's a girl in the front at the table, and he sits down with her and says, how are, you, how are you doing? And the girl says, not good. And he says, what happened? And, and the girl says, well, I'm having one of those days. I woke up, and my fish, my goldfish was dead. Oh. And then she says, as I was flushing it in the toilet, the cat jumped in and got it and ate it. Oh, the humanity. And she just starts weeping. And she's like, oh, God, and, and, and so she's crying. And if, if zippity doo guy keeps zippity doo would he still be a good guy? No, he'd be a jerk. If he just said, well, you win some, lose some. And drinking his coffee. It's like, that's, that guy is no longer a good guy. He's a jerk. He's a bad guy. And so in that sense, it, it, God's unchangingness, his nature unchanged, but someone that would say, yes, he does change his mind, would, would, would rest upon the idea that God changes it because his, not his nature changes, but his emotions, how he resolves, how he communicates with us, how he responds to us can change, so much so that he may change his mind to respond to us. And so, uh, some examples. I'm going to give you one, two, three, uh, four-ish. Genesis 6, and you can read that later. It's the story of God creating the heavens and the earth in in chapter 1, and then the the fall of man, is that chapter 2 or 3, the the story's following. And then it comes to chapter 6, where God looks down, and everybody is really, really Evil, So much evilness on the world that God decides to destroy the world with a flood. And what's interesting is the sentence right before God resolves to destroy the world with a flood. He says, I relent. I feel sorry that I... I, I mean, my kind of language is maybe did he make a mistake? Did he go from creating the world and then he relents and says... I've made something so, these people have turned so terrible, at least, that I no longer want them to be on the earth. I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. So that's Genesis 6. There's another example. Maybe some of you talked about this example at your tables. It's Exodus 32, uh, specifically verse 14. Exodus 32:14 says that God changes his mind or relents, which in the Hebrew is the exact same Hebrew word as First uh, Samuel fifteen twenty nine that says God does not change his mind, and then Exodus thirty two fourteen says, and then God changed his mind. Very interesting. Um, very interesting. The the incident in Exodus thirty two is that the people of Israel hanging out, they're laughing, they're joking, they're in their tents, they're playing around. Moses is on Mount Sinai, and when Moses comes back, he finds the the incident of the. The golden calf. People had melted gold down and are worshiping a golden calf instead of Yahweh. And then God says, you can read it for yourself, Exodus 32. God says, Moses, get out of here. I am going to destroy, destroy these people. And Moses gets down and says, oh Lord, please do not. These are your people. It's almost like Moses reminds God of his promises, reminds God, oh God, please have mercy. The, the idea of Moses standing in the gap for his people is where, if you've heard that phrase before. And then what does God do? 
Exodus 32, 14, God, it says, changes his mind and does not bring upon the disaster that he said he would. Very interesting, don't you think? So in one passage of Scripture, God will not change his mind, does not, he's not a man. And then, Exodus 32, God changed his mind. Interesting. 1 Samuel 15, this is a, a very interesting passage. So we just, for, for the God does not change his mind, we just read 1 Samuel fifteen twenty nine, But 1 Samuel fifteen ten, the story is interesting. So try to stay with me for the, for the story, and hopefully it'll make sense. That God anointed Saul to be king. Have you heard this story before? It's, it's, it's the biggest story in uh, 1 Samuel, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, this idea that God appoints, anoints Saul to be king. And then Saul keeps messing up, making bad decisions, prideful, he's arrogant. And so God says uh, in, uh, let's see, 1 Samuel 15, 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel the prophet. Sorry for confusing you with all these characters. The word of the Lord came to the prophet. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and he has not carried out my instructions. So, and then it goes on to say, so I'm, I'm removing Saul. I anointed him, but I'm removing him as king. And eventually it's going to say, and I'm putting David, King David in as my king. But what's so fascinating, if you've kind of followed what I've just been saying. Um, so, so Saul is removed as king. God anointed him as king. Then God says, no, you're no longer king. And then he says the statement, for I am not a man. I do not change my mind. But what's so interesting about that is that he just did. And then he changed his mind. And he said, I do not change my mind. Everybody say, What? It's interesting. You, you gotta, if, you, if you're interested in this question, which I, I hope to kind of stir up some questions, 1 Samuel 15 would be a great passage for you to study. That God anointed a king, then said, no, you're no longer king. I'm anointing David. I do not change my mind. What you just did, that's the, you changed your mind. And then you said you don't change your mind because now David's going to be king. It won't change your mind about this. What about that? Okay, one more example of God changing his mind. This in my opinion, is one of the um, most outstanding. And, and this one you can turn to if you have a second. It's 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20, because I'm going to read six verses here. 2 Kings chapter 20, starting in uh, verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It's the story of Hezekiah is the king of Israel. It's a cool name. And a guy named uh, Isaiah, I believe, is mentioned, who, who went on to write the book of Isaiah. He's Isaiah the prophet. So if you're there, it's 2 Kings chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It's going to talk about King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah wasn't that great of a dude. He was, he was proud. He was arrogant. God ends up judging him for that later. Uh, verse, verse 1 of chapter 20 says, In those days... Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. So he's sick. Put your house in order. You're going to die. You will not recover. But then something interesting happens. Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. 
Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and wholeheartedly in devotion and, and have, have done what is good in your eyes, which is, is some truth. <coughs> he was a good king, but not, not a perfect king. And then Hezekiah wept bitterly. So he's obviously very sorry. He's very sad. Um, before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father, David, says. I have heard your prayer, seen your tears, I will heal you. On the third day from now, you are to go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you from this city in the hands of the king of Syria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the, my sake of my servant David. Interesting. So here we have... So if, 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 you, if you raised your hand and said, maybe God does change his mind. We have this example here of God saying something. Hezekiah, you're going to die. You will not recover. And then Hezekiah prays and he weeps. And God says, I've seen your prayers. I've heard your weeping. I'm not going to let you die like I just said. But I'm going to add 15 years to your life. And, and I find that very interesting. I find the, the scriptures about God's unchangingness and then how he responds to us, very this tension. And, and last week, uh, I really hopefully brought up to your, to your knowledge this tension between God's transcendence and imminence. How God is above us, totally beyond us. We can't comprehend him. And yet at the same time, he's with us. He limits himself. He comes down and he responds to us. And there's this tension. And so, this question, does God change his mind? Uh, I'm sure a lot of you will still, some, some of you may say, yes, he does. Some of you may say, no, he does not. And, and, and you, you'll leave this room today with this tension. And I, I don't want to just say one or the other and then put a nice little bow around this message and say, oh, God is just like this. Isn't it pretty how we can just under, totally understand God in all of his godness? And, and we can't. There's no bow that I can nicely, neatly put on this little message and send you off today. But hopefully, I, I, I've been thinking about this question all, all week as I've been preparing for this message and asking different mill staff members, or maybe you came by throughout the week and I said, hey, you think God can change his mind? And then we got into this conversation, some of the conversations lasting quite a while, and it's just been a good, I've just been learning about God. And that, that quote from C.S. Lewis that as God, as I get bigger, and as, as I think about God, that God gets bigger, that God gets more complex, that there's less and less of a box that I could try to put God in, and He gets bigger and bigger, and He's awesome. So I want to leave you with this, this at least a, it's, it's definitely not a nice little bow around this message, but it's something that helps me understand this whole, can, does God change His mind? And so imagine a father... Uh, taking his kids, maybe he has two kids, on vacation. And they go somewhere uh, where the ocean's not too far away and it's warm. And the father says, tomorrow we're going to go to the beach. And the kids are like, yes, I love the beach. Oh, my gosh. And, and, and dad's like, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you how to surf. We're going to go boogie boarding. Um, we're going to swim in the ocean, find some shells. It's going to be awesome. And then the dad wakes up that morning and turns on the TV and finds out that there's sharks in the area. Like, do not go to the beach. There's sharks every once in a while that come in to feed. And there's sharks. Lots of sharks at the surrounding beaches. 
And Dad decides, we're not going to go to the beach anymore. And Dad decides, I don't even want to tell the kids that they're sharks because I don't want them to be afraid of the ocean. I don't want to you know, ruin the vacation and they'll be crying about sharks. And, and so what Dad says is, hey, kids, guess what? We're going to go to the water park today. Yay! And the, and the kids are like, we wanted to go to the beach. Dad, we wanted to go to the beach. And, and Dad says, well, no, we're not going to the beach. And he doesn't want to explain the shark thing, doesn't want to scare the kids. So Dad just says, I've changed my mind. Sorry, I hope this doesn't ruin the vacation. Hopefully we'll have just as much fun at the water park. And the kids are disappointed, obviously. And from the kids' perspective, God just changed, or excuse me, the, the father just changed his mind. But what is so different about the father in this little story and God is that a human father is not omnipotent, nor is he omniscient. A human, a human being, a father, wanting to have fun with his kids and a vacation, saying, tomorrow we're going to the beach, I promise, did not know that there was going to be sharks in the beach in to feed. Um, and so, that, does God know all? Does God know the future? Sure. So, if God, God doesn't change his mind like a human changes his mind, because if... If this human dad was God, he would have known that the sharks were coming. And, and, and secondly, God, unlike the man, unlike the father in the little story, is not, uh, God is all-powerful. God can snap his fingers and, and just shoot the sharks away and bring the kids to the beach. The human, the, the guy, if a shark started killing and eating one of the kids, there's probably little he could do about it. He's not all-powerful enough to save his kids from getting eaten. And so the, fa- the, the father in the story just says, I've changed my mind. But it is unlike, if you compare that with God, that is unlike our God. Our God is all-powerful and omniscient. So if he does change his mind, it is unlike our changing of our mind. And so as I've wrestled with the question, that's kind of the, the attitude that I've had as I've thought about a possible solution. But it's really not because it still it begs the question, does he change his mind? Yes or no? Well, if you say yes, but it's not like how we change our mind, it's kind of the middle ground. It's not really answering the question fully because we cannot fully know God. So, let's pray to him. Let's just... Con- con- I-, I hope to, by not really like making this nice, nice little bow on this message, will hopefully encourage you to ask this question of, of your Christian friends, maybe your non-Christian friends. Does God change his mind? It's a, it has a lot to do with the attributes of God and what you think and believe about him. So let's pray to him. God, we thank you for your, your hugeness, your bigness, your holiness. That your ways are not our ways. That anything that we have to, to even begin to understand you, our minds, our hearts, that can just begin to grasp you, is because you've given us that ability. And so God, we do thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the ability to even begin to come to a knowledge of who you are. God, would you continually humble us, though, with your bigness. God, do not allow us to put you in a box and think we have you all figured out, because we never will. You are God, and we are not. God, continually just put on our hearts these questions and and the resolve to know you more fully and deeply. God, we leave here praising your name because you are good, you are holy, you are all-powerful. So we love you and we praise you. And everybody said... Amen. All right, everybody, you're dismissed. I do know that in big church today, our, our middle pastor, Aaron Stern, will be speaking. So race over there and get a good seat. But don't forget to high-five people on your way out.
Peace.